Bonjour, monsieur Assoir. <laughs> Bonjour. Bonjour, Diane. It's great to meet you again. Yeah. Uh, it's my great pleasure to uh, introduce uh, Mr. Assoir, Jean-Luc Assoir, uh, for this uh, episode of the podcast from Research to Reality. I'm looking forward to talking to you. Uh, so you and I have met maybe almost 10 years ago. Uh, at that time, we were for the first time looking at high-performance computing in the cloud. And uh, you never gave up on that. You know, we researchers move on, but you faithfully stuck to this theme and uh, you moved it quite a bit forward. So can you explain to us a little bit what is high-performance computing? How do you do it in the cloud? What are enablers? What are challenges? Sure. So first of all, uh, yeah, a few um, uh, explanations about what HPC is, high performance computing. So this is uh, a category of technologies that let uh, uh, engineers, researchers, uh, actually to uh, run mathematical equations on, on, on computers. And uh, you have uh, any, you, you have as, uh, as many uh, use as you can get from weather forecast or uh, uh, cars or uh, products, iPhone, whatever. So this is a, a very, um, if you like, ethnic category into the uh, high-tech world, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, and this uh, sector uh, is going through a massive transformation to the cloud, as you said. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, there's a, um, a fundamental reason for that uh, is because, um, most most of our customers are looking for new uh, business models uh, out of digital platforms. So digital platforms is a way where you can share uh, services with uh, your customers, and you can actually have your own customers, you know, um, helping you build building a better service. Think of uh, autonomous driving or uh, uh, Uber or whatever, uh, whatever you can think of. So this is uh, this is. Uh, a healthy business model. I mean, the whole economy is moving to that that business model, and uh, you know, building a digital platforms requires that you you um, uh, how do you say swallow more data than than ever. Uh, this data would come from uh, from the edge, actually, from uh, from anybody, from the cars, from the iPhone, and so on, or uh, mobile handphones, so to speak. And you have to digest this information. Uh, you can do simulation, but you can do analytics and you can do also machine learning on this information. And, uh, uh, you know, um, all our customers are looking for the horsepower uh, for, uh, you know, to, to run these uh, new workloads. And that's what high performance computing uh, uh, can provide. So uh, the goal of uh, HPC in the cloud is to provide a more open and more agile uh, HPC uh, system that can be used by digital platform uh, suppliers. And in, uh, uh, in simply put, so in, in cloud is well known for moving capital expenditure to operational expenditure, and that's even more true for high performance computing because these are really high end machines with cost a lot of money. So there's even more benefit in this area. Is that true? Yeah, so if you look actually, so when you look at all the attributes or all the ingredients that you need uh, to, to build an HPC cloud, you have ingredients that would be uh, actually inherited from the public cloud or where the public cloud would lead, so to speak. You would have ingredients where 
HPE is very well positioned and you would have also other ingredients. And actually this notion of uh, CAPEX uh, to OPEX is actually really about um, a better cash flow optimization. Mm -hmm. And surprisingly, this is not where the public cloud is leading. We, we lead that uh, party, if you like, with our flagship solution. So I'm not here to promote anything from HP, yeah. but truly GreenLake is the best model in the world to help our customers having a more, uh, if you like, optimized cash flow, okay? Mm -hmm. Because actually we are holding uh, some of their expenditure into our books so that they can mitigate the financial risks. So we are our own bank and we can do that. We can value, we, we can do the valuation of our hardware and then we can provide the best cash flow optimization for our customers. So that particular attribute from, you know, uh, this consumption-based model, we are actually better. But the cloud is actually shining and leading in uh, very important ingredients such as self-service, for instance, um, you know, uh, containers, Linux containers, and this notion of CI-CD pipelines where our customer will be able to, um, if you like, build and deploy their application faster wherever they want. Okay, so this is something that uh, we really need to catch up and how do you say incorporate into our our model, so to speak. And then you get uh, other attributes, such as, for instance, data centers. Data centers, as you said, are huge assets. We are not a data center company, but our customers are massively moving to, uh, if you like, uh, sustainable data centers, you know, uh, and uh, this is where we have to partner. Other areas where we shine at HP is this with this notion of composability. So, um, you know, uh, we, we, you know, as, as, a, as a manager for this program, I really love, you know, this notion of Gen Z because this is the ultimate composability that you can provide uh, to a particular user. You know, the vision is that anybody could really, in a few clicks, compose the right level of hardware that they want for their particular workload, mm -hmm. okay? And Gen Z is actually, this sort of composability is actually uh, something where uh, HPE has the vision and hopefully we can deliver it uh, to the market. So and what, what is Gen Z? Not everyone knows. I happen to know, but uh, the audience is why they may want. What is it? So Gen Z, uh, simply put, is really about redefining what a server is. Mm -hmm. So uh, you have... Um, um, uh, today, uh, when you look at the server, you see a, a box uh, with a, a very, uh, how do you say, inflexible uh, uh, way to, uh, to, to compose the processor, the memory, the disks, and so on. And uh, Gen Z is really about uh, bringing some more flexibility with a service bus that will help and that service bus will be optical, uh, so we can really uh, uh, have a lot of flexibility in composing different kinds of memories, disks, and and uh, processing units into one single uh, architecture. So um, that's that's the way we define it. I don't know. So already in this answer to the first question on the display, were all skills that you have. Uh, accumulated over the years. You were an engineer, you were a salesperson, you're a business manager. How did you manage all of these and what, what are the roles that you like most? What are those that you think you can still improve? Um, I, okay, I think I, 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 I love all, all, uh, all wars because uh, in every world, role, uh, in every, if you like, uh, skill, so to speak, be it uh, engineer or sales or uh, strategy, so to speak, 
you have a degree of uh, uh, rationality and a degree of, uh, if you like, um, intangible, right? Uh, an engineer is highly effective. There's beliefs, there's myths, and there's also, you know, things that are very rational. And it's the same for a salesperson. A sales transaction is actually very, very emotional if you want to win a customer. And, but then there's also a lot of ingredients that are rational. So I'm kind of, I really wanted to be ambidextrous and learn, uh, you know, uh, what was the rational part of each role and make sure I can, um, I can be an entrepreneur. You know, and I could overlook at the problem, at the business problem, you know, uh, holistically, so to speak. So, uh, in the in the in the past, uh, you know, you, you would call that a polymath. You know, in the in the in the time of Renaissance, mm -hmm. when you know these these type these these people were so proficient in philosophy, math, and um, and law, and and so on. So I'm 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 not at that level, right? But I think it's still important to be to have this polymath uh, attitude. Yeah, very nice, very nice. I, I like how you explain it. But, but let's go in a little bit detail for each one of these um, uh, roles you play in, in, in your career. You started as a telecom engineer responsible for uh, network services engineering department. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit what kind of experience was that? What did you do? What did you learn? Yeah, so uh, sure, I can do that. So first of all, we need to remember that this was before the uh, this was this was before the uh, telco burst. You know, we we had this burst in two thousand and one, which really shaked the uh, the economy, and that was right after the uh, deregulation. So the deregulation happened in ninety six actually, and this is where I start my role. So everybody has great expectations about what you could expect from, uh, if you like, a telecom network. And uh, as weird as it could be, you know, telecommunication networks was very monolithic at that time. And we introduced the notion of a uh, client server and uh, or software defined, so to speak, uh, 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 technologies so that you can actually isolate, you know, how do you, how do you make connections and if you like the logics of making these connections. Mm -hmm. So, it was in 96, so this was very important uh, for us to develop smarter services. So uh, I, I, I was uh, designing, if you like, the, um, the connection between the handsets, which has its own logic, in, embedded logic in the SIM cards and so on, and the network. But that was, of course, you know, not close to what we can do today with, um, with modern technologies. So I did that. Uh, up to the point where, uh, you know, we were approaching this burst, you know, this uh, bubble burst with the notion of third generation. So now we are moving to 5G, but uh, at that time, we were looking at 3G and 3G was just, uh, if you mm -hmm. like, uh, an exuberance, an exuberance, totally, you know, we, everybody was dreaming, people were putting lots of capital on this technology and so on, including with the auctions, you know, for, uh, you know, for spectrum and so on. And the services were not, were not there. If you remember, if you, if you could think of 2001, you know, the amount of content that you had, Netflix was not here, you know, um, uh, Skype was not here. So you had no services and it was all about, okay, we are, we're, we're gonna reinvent everything way back in 2001. And I said, okay, by the way, this was very interesting because that market was technology led, not business led. Yeah. And this is where I said, but you know, all of these people, telco people can be very happy with designing the next roadmap, the next plan yeah. for technology with no notion of what was the bottom line and the benefits from end users. And then I quit, I quit in 2001, 
to 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 shift to to HPC and uh, uh, in in uh, in Compaq at that time. And that is when you move to um, do the sales right, to of HP. HPC. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I said, yeah, no more technology. <laughs> exactly. So I said, okay, there must be something else than you know designing technology or it's it. And this is, by the way, what Antonio Neri says now. It's mm -hmm. tech for good. Yeah. So at that time, it was tech for tech, <laughs> right? So, um, um, okay, I said, okay, let me learn more about what our customers need, and maybe I can make a difference at some point with technology. So I moved to uh, to the to, to the cell organization in France, and that was another very interesting experience because um, uh, we were we were you know the whole world was transitioning from Unix to Linux. Mm -hmm. to um uh you know to uh, uh you know to alpha proprietary processors you know to x86 so that was another disruption and when you're a salesperson and then you have to manage all the transition and really reinvent what does it mean to sell you know a, a linux contract versus a unix contract mm -hmm. that was a uh, wide west sort of speak so i learned uh, also, what, what what was HPC was about, and at that time, HPC was a niche. You know, now we speak about AI. Everybody understands that AI is very important, but at that time, AI was not on the on the radar. HPC, you know, was a niche, and then the goal that I had is to raise the attention of our uh, managers, of our managing directors, about the opportunity of HPC. And the, and the managing director told me once, Jean-Luc, if I understand you well, your market is infinite. And it actually is truly infinite. And the only question is, how much should I invest into your market? And then HPC become um, a, a, you know, a, 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 a country, uh, uh, how do you say, uh, one of the top first priority for the country out of being a niche, uh, uh, you know, way back in 2001. So once you have sorted out sales, uh, you realize yeah. you need to sort out marketing for the company. And, yeah. um, and you started running uh, in the corporate uh, on the segmented markets uh, of automotive, uh, aerospace, semiconductors. H how did you do that and what was your uh, experience? So the um, you know after you know uh, a few years in the in, in the sales area, you know, I realized that it was all red ocean. Uh, you know, we, we still had a lot of competitors. Today we have less competitors because we have absorbed some of them, like Cray and SGI. And at that time, it was competition all over the place. Mm -hmm. And then I had this opportunity to move to corporate, and I said, you know, I need to do something, you know, to make sure that we can differentiate ourselves. And then I looked at uh, the HPC market with, with a corporate view about what would make us, what would make us win, what was our differentiators, and uh, you know looking at who was really driving the market. Uh, so I had in my responsibility was about semiconductors and automotive and and, uh, and aerospace, but I really looked at who was the drivers of that market, and certainly not us but more the application providers, you know, the NCs mm -hmm. of the world and the synopsis and so on. So they were the, the one that were setting the innovation agenda of our customers and who were coming second. The other big players of that market were system integrators, mm -hmm. not the public cloud at that time, but system integrators such as, uh, you know, Accenture and, and others. And then, you know, the, the obvious thing for me was to, to, to tie up our story 
to, uh, to new routes to markets and develop joint selling approach with ISVs. So something which you, could, you would consider simple as a strategy, it was not rocket science, mm -hmm. but um, it was a, a disruption in the sense that we were used to sell big machines to our customers ourselves, putting the big machine in a data center in a silos, okay? And it was very difficult for us to step back and look at the market and look at the, at the drivers of the market. So, and then this is what drove, you know, the redefinition of our strategy, you know, with yeah. the route to market, with collaborating with the big boys and stuff like that. So, so your contributions didn't go unnoticed. Your scope of influence broadened and broadened. So you suddenly moved to run special operations, uh, special projects within EMEA. Uh, Europe, Middle East, and Africa. And um, some of the interesting outcomes were these centers of excellence for hybrid HPC. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that era of your career? Yeah, so sure. So at that point, you know, uh, I said that it was important not only to strategize, not only to uh, gather learnings and insights about what was going on in the world, but also to apply you know the strategy somewhere and this is where I, I, I did a deal you know I make I, I made a deal with the you know the EMEA manager that says you know your story sounds good now come and deliver it so uh, the first thing that uh, I did was actually to create that center of excellence mm -hmm. for a good reason is because we will never get as close as needed to our customers so we created that facility in a way that we could experiment and learn very fast uh, so, you know, this is the concept of Lean Startup. I, I don't know if yeah. this is the right term right, right now, but uh, for us, it was really about, okay, let's put the hardware closer to the customer. And by the way, outside of the company. So my center of excellence actually was created in Iceland uh, with a cloud service provider, which was Advania. And the reason was because, you know, we could move very fast from concept to, you know, uh, delivering a project because it was... Every, everything was mm -hmm. almost in pre-production. And the Advania was absolutely fascinating company because it was in Iceland. They had zero CO2, you know, data center facilities. Actually, they were doing Bitcoins at that time. So they had a lot of compute, uh, a lot of hosting uh, capacity, you know, hundreds of megawatts, you know, mm -hmm. available. And all of a sudden I could say, okay, I can start a project and experiment with my customers in Iceland, and then I can grow indefinitely with that customer. And by the way, just by considering my Icelandic providers, I could meet the public cloud in terms of market power, because I had the megawatts of good HPC worth data centers, all sustainable, okay? Uh, you know, I, but I didn't have, you know, all the cores, you know, in, in the bursting capacity, so to speak, like the public law. But I have my own market power with, uh, uh, you know, with the Icelandic. So this is, this is uh, uh, how, how, how it gained actually the attention of the corporate again. Over so the years, years after, yeah. yeah. Over the years, you go. started locally with France, then suddenly you yeah. covered EMEA. And with this center of excellence, suddenly you were globally influencing the world. Can you tell us how that growth matched your experience and what was the difference in these contributions? Um, yeah, sure. So, um, um, you know, I think it's, I discovered that it was very important uh, to uh, break the silos between corporate and, and the field, which is something that looks obvious, mm -hmm. but in 
practical, you know, not many people do that, you know. So having a good connection with selected geos, selected uh, salespeople to learn permanently about the customer pain point and acid test, you know, value prop and also a program. And also make sure that we can strategize out of uh, all these probs. I think that was very important. Um, you know, the you know the corporate com corporate groups tends to move slower than the field, so you can hire partners, you can create new concepts in the field, and then carry carry them on as a proof uh, to the corporate and expand. So it was kind of a back and forth game between experimenting at the local level and uh, and uh, you know and uh, strategizing. And it's very important at some point when you're building a strategy, you know, that you can back it up with stories and examples. Mm -hmm. So it was the perfect blend. So I never stopped being a salesperson. Um, even if I was uh, in a corporate, uh, in a corporate role. So good, yeah. good, nice. And one of the reasons for that behavior, that successful behavior was also due to education. You weren't, uh, you started as uh, uh, with Master of Science in Technology, but then you moved on uh, to the business school, uh, HEC Hack. Uh, can you tell us about uh, what kind of benefits did you earn from one versus the other, and what was your experience? Uh, yes, as you said, so I did my Master of Science uh, with, with Telecoms Paris Tech. So this is an Ivy League um, uh, school. And then what you get from, um, you know, from that as a culture is that, uh, you know, everything and you can impose your view to everybody. And, uh, I think it's in, in a certain way, this is okay. When you're starting your career, you get the, that confidence and so on. But as you move uh, in a, in senior positions, it's not, I don't think it's that great because, um, you're missing you you you're missing a lot of uh, soft skills you know that are needed as well, mm -hmm. uh, which is about learning, which is about uh, which is about um, our, uh, you know uh, learning from different cultures and learning from different practices, mm -hmm. um, and um, this is and, and and at some point you know given the level of budget that I was managing, you know when you have to spend uh, 10k or 100k there's always uh, somebody who will, who will ask you what's the ROI okay mm -hmm. and then what's the ROI how can you make sure that you always bring the right return on investment uh, as you say uh, parameters to justify your decision and I said you know I know nothing about soft skills and I know nothing about finance and uh, if I want to be my own captain I need to learn these things mm -hmm uh extensively so this is why i did this mba um and one of my focus was um uh, finance finance just because we are you know in a company like hp where we are transitioning and pivoting to new business models there's always a question about is it the right place to allocate your funding and what's the return on investment so it was an obvious um, uh, move or you know skills that I needed to uh, to acquire, but I discovered a lot about soft skills as well, about neurodiversity, about um, uh, you know uh, several several aspects of uh, of uh, of the management culture, the you know the different profiles of innovators and stuff like that, which was also very interesting. Um, and um, and it gives a lot of meaning to you know the 
you know, the career path that you described, actually, I got the ultimate meaning after, after HEC, you know, because before I was like, you know, doing things um, uh, almost uh, stochastically, so to speak. Yeah. Then I realized that it was kind of very um, um, uh, compelling and, and articulated. So. so from opportunistic to strategic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You touched on two very important things. One is culture, the other is diversity. Let's focus on these two a little bit. Um, before HP, so you've been working for HP for quite a while, HP and before that HP. Um, and, but before that, you work in a telecom company. What mm -hmm. was the difference in cultures? Can you recognize culture of our company versus the other companies? Yeah, absolutely. This is a great question. So uh, I, um, you know, definitely, uh, Wig Telecom was an engineer-driven company. Uh, it was a startup that becomes a very big group, and um, uh, maybe 30% of the mobile market area in uh, in, in France. A very uh, engineering-driven, mm -hmm. and um, by contrast, HP is definitely a uh, you know a customer-driven company. So sales are kings. You know we are all working for salespeople. I mean, in a sense, you know they they uh, actually they own the PNL. Of, of whatever we sell to the customer. So in, in that, from that standpoint, they are the ultimate arbitrator of what we do, uh, you know, from, from the labs, from the engineering, and also from the strategy standpoint. So I think it's, uh, um, I like HP cultures for that. I think uh, an in, a, a too much of an engineer culture could, uh, could, be, uh, could be dangerous. Yeah. But um, I think you know that very well because when we met, actually, I was a salesperson and you were in HP Labs, and then we 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 find this uh, collaboration very very naturally. For instance, uh, you had created that papers, the series of papers about the the cloud, and I think it was in 2011, uh, which was actually very foundational uh, for me because in 2011 it was a research hypothetical research to say, and what if we could do HPC and cloud, you know? And in the sales community, we're like, no, 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 you know, the cloud will never cross our, our, our sector, you know, it's, mm -hmm. we, we need ultimate performance, blah, 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 and so on. Oh, so it yeah. was iconoclastic. Yeah. yeah, it was iconoclastic to say, what if? So that level of research, you know, when I looked at it, I'd say, oh, by the way, there's something that we're missing because we are hearing already customers try you know just driving the public and so on so that paper was kind of the foundation of of our our program and then we said let's look at technology like like you did in that paper let's look at the the you know the compelling you know the, what will trigger our customers to move because of their business models and also because of their financial performance in, in a nutshell about you know all the um, ingredients of a strategy and certainly saying okay we are better in performance than the cloud, so the cloud will never hit us. And you know what is happening right now is that yeah. uh, uh, it's, it's, it's all over there. So now we have to redefine ourselves with very strong competitors. So, but I'm, I'm, I'm confident. Yeah, so it's, it's a great partnership. You know, on one hand, yeah. uh, having research, on the other, person who works with customers, the synergy is best. Mm -hmm. Let's go back to the diversity. Uh, there's a lot mm -hmm. of discussions about inclusion and diversity in the United States, but also around the world. Uh, I think 
for you in Europe, and I also originate from Europe, uh, it has been there forever because uh, it's so multicultural. Uh, so tell us, wh what is your experience? How do you see things happening in the United States versus in Europe all the time, practically, especially in France? So uh, this is not a Greek question. So I'm, I'm, I'm from West Indies, you know, so uh, West Indies is uh, the edge of the world, like, uh, of the known world, right? It's very far from everything. And then, uh, you know, uh, just, just by that defining me, you know, I had to uh, listen to everybody else. When I took the plane and arrived in, in, in Paris, it was me learning and uh, before I could express myself extensively. One, one, I remember one time you said, Jean-Luc, you talk too much. So <laughs> I, I, at some point, yeah, I, I realized that I was talking too much at some point, but I had to learn a lot before. And so there's no place, if you like, which is better than others like America versus Europe in terms of diversity. There's all the, the, there's benefits and there's a lot of drawbacks. I don't need to talk about the drawbacks. We know what doesn't go well in Europe as we speak and in the US, but there's also interesting thing that I see. First of all, um, you, know, um, you know, the Europe is not monolithic. So there's uh, skills and flavors when you speak about science you know what you what you what you get from somebody from central europe and what you get from somebody from the netherlands and what you get from somebody from france is different there's different touches that's a great if you like assets for europe is that we can have different flavors of, of thinking in terms of science for instance and uh, but the other thing which is great in the us is that there is this big push to say we need to be absolutely bold in the way we uh, we open the door to everybody and we can let everybody have their, we can let everybody have their own uh, chances, if you like. In the, by contrast in the US, which is great, is that um, um, uh, you, you can really, uh, how do you say, uh, make a difference and you can be, you, there's kind of a, um, uh, a goodwill, if you like, um, and uh, nobody cares about uh, your origin or your uh, or, or where you come from or your social uh, profile. What really matters, this is very strong, is exactly who you are and what you can bring on the table. Yeah. So that's what I experiment when I moved to corporate. All of a sudden, I was not somebody coming from West Indies or somebody, whatever. I was just Jean-Luc, and they were interested about what I had to say and nothing else. So. Um, and then, you know, I experience, I experience that, um, you know, working with multiple cultures is, 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 is what, what is creating a lot of uh, value for sure. In this program, we're working with Island, Icelandic people, mm -hmm. you know, with people from Europe, people from the US, uh, people from India, it works very well. I think this is a great asset for HPE, you know, that push, if you like, for diversity. I, I really like your focus on positives. That's that's the best way to go. You know, patch up the the yeah. problems. You know, sort them out, but focus on yeah. positives. That will take us much further. Yeah. I have two last questions. One is related to the COVID situation. It's almost a mandatory. I mean, it's everywhere around us. It's constraining us in unprecedented ways. So, can you tell us your experience, especially living in France? How is French government taking care of that? How is our company taking care of our employees, et cetera? Yeah, so it's a, it's a great question. So we, uh, you know, HP, uh, you know, with that culture of um, 
workers' uh, mobility, if you like. Uh, it was not a problem for, uh, for me because actually I'm already home office, so it didn't change anything. Whereas, you know, in France, you know, we don't have this culture of uh, remote workers, which was like a, a disruption in terms of culture. All of these people having to work from their house was a disruption. So I think here HP as, you know, as, uh, is, 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 is a modern company, so to speak. And when you look at what's happened in, in, in France, I realized that, uh, you know, the situation is okay. So we did it our own way. There's, there was a lot of critics about how Germany did it or Korea or the US and so on. But at the end of the day, um, we, we are all going through uncertain times, okay? Nobody really knows, you know, um, uh, if, you know, uh, exactly what, you know, what is the, what, what is the how, how are we going to cure it? How are we going to detect it? How is it spreading? If it's spreading in the air or whatever. So I realized that there is still a lot of unknown with, uh, with health, you know, and with medicine as we speak. Certainly a good, a good opportunity for, you know, for government to use more HPC to do more work. Uh, about how disease are spreading, you know, because it looks to me like it's almost middle age. Every situation in every country has its own middle age, if you like, um, yeah. uh, stories, right? Yeah. Sweden has done it differently from Germany and so on. So I would be cautious to say uh, it's, it's being stabilizing, but there's a lot to be learned. And uh, many, comp many, many countries will, will share their... Uh, uh, best practices, you know, and nobody knows who has done best. You know, sometimes you have, very, you know, <laughs> Korea was very popular at some point, like Hong Kong, like Jap Japan, yeah. and so on. And now it's more mitigated. So we should be very careful about who does what better. It's still time for learning. So that's what I'm capturing from from this COVID nineteen uh, thing. Okay, Jean Luc, um, excellent, excellent review. I. Uh... Uh, I, I really uh, learn a lot from you every time. Every time we meet, uh, I learn something. Uh, so I hope uh, the audience have also picked up uh, uh, great things for you. Thank you so much.